This is Discord and Rhyme. 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 Oh, that is great, Mike. Winner. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. I'm your host, Rich Bennell, here with... Amanda Rogers. Phil Maddox. Mike DeFabio. And Mike's our producer. And uh, Amanda, did you want to tell us a little more about the podcast? Sure. Uh, We all met almost 20 years ago now um, online, back when it was still fairly unusual to do that. Uh, United by a shared love of music of all kinds and of being pretty rude to each other when we disagreed and that formed lasting friendships. So almost 20 years later, we've moved away from our web 1.0 music review websites that we called the web reviewing community and decided to roll with the times. And so now we have this wonderful podcast where we can geek out about music of all kinds and share it with all of you lovely people. And so how does the podcast play out? Well, we pick a different album for every episode from any genre you can name. We're all over the map, musically speaking. Uh, One of us will host and do the majority of the research. Uh, We will play the album uh, with clips of each song and then discuss it song by song. So for this week, uh, we have chosen, well, Rich has chosen Earth, Wind & Fire's wonderful album, All in All. And he is going to tell us a little bit more about how he came to know this album and why he picked it. Well, so uh, like a lot of people, I know Earth, Wind & Fire primarily through the song September. Uh, In fact, growing up, I literally never heard anything but the song September just on the radio and really just from general cultural osmosis. And I couldn't even tell you the name. It was the song with the famous falsetto. Uh, So, I mean, based on some recommendations from people uh, who just told me they were like the bee's knees, I decided to investigate a few years ago. And I found out that their classic period in the 70s comprises a remarkably creative, solid run of classics. The one I picked, all in all, it, to me, is the peak of an incredible run of albums that aren't often spoken of as part of the canon. Do you mean just Earth, Wind, and Fire's canon or classic music in general? The canon, like capital C. Yeah. Uh, like the same canon that Sticky Fingers is in or, say, like Revolver. You never see an mm-hmm. Earth, Wind, and Fire album in there. But I, right, yeah, I, you're right. And I personally think that they have several that are worth it, and this is the peak of them. Excellent. Well, like a lot of people, I think I grew up hearing a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire on the radio, uh, but as far as actual albums, I never moved beyond sort of a greatest hits level. You know, I I got their best of about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years back, and it was one of those situations where I knew all the songs on it, just didn't realize that I knew them before. And then when you suggested this one, that was the first time I'd heard any of their actual studio albums all the way through, and I'm really glad that you picked it. It's really great. I was missing out all this time. I hope it's the beginning of a longer journey for you. I think it will be. Right, and I, um, my experience with Earth, Wind, and Fire was actually very limited before uh, Rich selected this album for the podcast. People have been kind of ribbing me just in our pre-show chat because 
somehow I don't even know how this happened. Yeah, you won't believe this guy. I had never heard September until literally today when I was listening to some random other Earth, Wind and Fire songs before the podcast. I feel like that would have taken some effort. Yeah, my reaction was, have you never been to a wedding? I have, but like some if it if it played, I didn't notice it. But like when I heard it today, it didn't ring any bells. Yeah, that happens so, sometimes. Uh, I, I guess we'll probably get into this a bunch of times over the podcast, but I didn't hear Mo Money Mo Problems until 2006. But so the Earth, Wind and Fire songs that I knew were basically Shining Star and um, Let's Groove. Because I, I actually kind of have a bit of a... 70s funk and soul like hole in my you know music collection i have you know a bunch of parliament and funkadelic albums i have a bunch of stevie wonder albums but i have some marvin gay albums but it's not nearly as deep as you know my collection of like rock music from that era so i you know was looking forward to getting to listen to this album because give me a good excuse to like dig into a pretty well acclaimed band and I've just been listening to All in All a whole bunch the last couple of weeks in uh, preparation for this podcast, which I enjoyed quite a bit. All right, Mike, what's your story? Well, my story is uh, I always knew about Earth, Wind & Fire as a, a band that existed. And, you know, I'd heard September plenty of times and a few of their other songs. Uh, but they were a band that I kind of ignored when I was getting into funk just because I, I gravitated more towards, you know, James Brown, Funkadelic, uh, compilations of Funk 45s where the drums sounded like they were recorded with one microphone way too loud. Uh, and Earth, Wind & Fire just seemed, you know, more, you know, a little slicker than what I was looking for. Uh, not that I had anything against them, it just I just kind of passed them up. And it wasn't until Rich mentioned that he was getting really into them that I decided to really investigate them and it was sort of like it was similar to uh the first time i ever listened to rumors by fleetwood mac where i had heard all those songs a million times but i didn't care until that moment or like i i just realized what what these songs are all great so you know what my, my wife had a similar experience with rumors like the first time she heard it it turned out she'd only not just not heard the songs in that order yeah so, yeah, that was pretty much my experience. As of, as of right now, I only really have their Greatest Hits album, which I bought because you can't get an album with September on it. So uh, so All in All is the first like album album of theirs that I've heard, and I, I enjoy it. So, Rich, before we start discussing the album, can you tell us why you picked it for our very first episode? Well, sure. So we actually had a, a pretty like lively discussion about which album to pick for our first one. And um, for our practice episodes, we actually picked a couple of, uh, of albums that we all just knew back to front or, you know, just inside out, such as uh, like Revolver by the Beatles and Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Uh, but in the end, I decided to start with something that was a little left field, but also had a news hook. And this band has been in the news lately, um, mostly thanks to Taylor Swift's much maligned acoustic cover uh, of September. And uh, so I can put some good articles from The Root into the show notes, but this isn't just another bad cover. It's both tone deaf on Swift's part and also just kind of emblematic of how much the song and Earth, Wind & Fire's other hits in general have become just sort of part of the cultural wallpaper, something that you hear at weddings, but 
kind of like the context has been lost to time. But I thought like one of the of the articles that I mentioned from the root had a really good quote. Um, the one written by Michael Harriet, uh, as he wrote in his critique of Swift, "Earth, Wind, and Fire is a choir, and September is a spiritual." And I think that that speaks to the context. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire in their time were one of the most successful bands of the 70s, and on top of that, a genuine movement. They weren't just a greatest hits collection. Um, the they were just a whole thing. And so I'm going to provide some background for you uh, just to, uh, before we get into this album itself. So it's the brainchild of Maurice White, who was originally born in Memphis. And when he was 16, moved to Chicago. And he became a session drummer at Chess Records. And he, he managed to cut his teeth um, playing for a lot of great musicians, such as Booker T, David Porter, Isaac Hayes. Um, and he eventually decided to set out on his own after you know learning with the greats. And it's funny, apparently had the complete lineup of Earth, Wind, and Fire sketched out as a vision in his head from the start. To quote Maurice White, one day I was on a plane and I drew a picture of the group and I put a picture of the book in a book I was reading and put it away for some three years. And then a few years later, he looked at it and it was the band just that he'd formed, the nine-person Earth, Wind, and Fire that was the most famous lineup. So I, I guess I should get into that lineup before we actually get into the album itself. But for Earth, Wind & Fire's most successful period from 1973 to 1981, they were a surprisingly stable nine-person lineup backed up by tons of session musicians. Um, like uh, the one that we're covering right now, all in all, I think has a total of 58 musicians who play on the album and all. And so they, um, they broke through with the chart topper Shining Star in 1975, which you heard at the top of the episode. Um, and they were chart fixtures for the remainder of the decade. And like I said earlier, I picked this album. I, I could have picked any of their albums, but this one is one of my particular favorites. And I think, it's, uh, I think it does a lot of interesting things. And I think, uh, I think we're ready to get going on it. Do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think so, too. And I think uh, those of us with small children remember September from its notable inclusion in the Trolls movie. Mm-hmm. It was actually re-recorded, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire re-recorded it with Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake for the film soundtrack. Really? Yeah. But Maurice White wasn't involved at all, I assume. I mean, he died. I wouldn't think so. I don't know when the recording was actually done, but the movie came out the year he died, so I would doubt it. And I believe he had, I believe he had Parkinson's, so I don't think he was in very good physical shape towards the end. No, it seems like he wouldn't have been able to participate yeah, that's one thing that um, that's one thing I forgot to mention up top is that Maurice White died in February 2016, part of the gigantic wave of deaths that was that horrible, horrible year. And he unfortunately got drowned out by all those or all those deaths in that horrible, horrible year, which is really a shame because that was a big loss. Yeah, he was in the valley between um, between Bowie and Prince. He was in February between those two. Yeah, that would drown anybody out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, do you guys do you all want to get started? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's hear some Serpentine Fire. Yeah, let's go with track one. This is uh, Serpentine Fire. Sparkling to shine. 
what can you tell us about that? Okay, so that was Serpentine Fire. Um, that was the big. That was the first single and the biggest hit from the album at the time. It hit number thirteen on the Hot 100 and topped the R&B charts. Um, and I think it's a great, a great way to start the album right off the bat. It's a good showcase for what I think is the central vocal feature of Earth, Wind, and Fire, which is Maurice White's baritone contrasted with Phil Bailey's falsetto, which it just kind of like you know smoothly snakes into in the chorus, so to speak. I think there's a lot of snake-like things about this song, actually. I think the, I think there's a lot of tone painting going on here, which is uh, using like the form of music to express the themes of a song. Like To me, the melody, and in fact, the entire arrangement of the song sort of, I don't know, to me, swerve back and forth in sort of a serpentine pattern. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, agree. I, I think it does exactly that. Yeah, and it's the drums that... really emphasize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so like somebody brought up, this song is a tango. But I'm a novice in music theory and can't really tell you why, but... I assume you're not super great at ballroom dance either. Um, I've, 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 I've tried to ballroom dance before, but yes, I was never super great at it. Well, did you learn the tango? Um, oh, man. Now I'm sounding like such a 12-year-old on my own podcast. No, it's, uh, <laughs> no I never learned the tango. Oh, I was gonna, if you had, you should, you know, just try dancing the tango to this song and see how well it works, and then you'll know whether it's a tango or not. But it is a characteristic of a tango to have sort of a serpentine pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a. So that's what I was thinking. Um, anyway, so so in terms of the themes of the song, really, like, I, there isn't really a lot to dig into in Earth, Wind, and Fire's lyrics. It uh, it expresses their wider spiritual philosophy, um, and it really teed off a lot of critics for some reason, which we'll get into in a later track. But uh, as far as I can tell, the serpentine fire is is the chi that flows up through your body to your brain and. It's serpentine because it goes through your circulatory system. And um, I'm not trying to, you know, make it sound like frivolous, but basically like that's uh, essentially like all of the lyrics on this album are some sort of expression of Maurice White's like central philosophy of Earth, Wind and Fire. I've gotten the impression that as a lyricist, Maurice White wasn't concerned so much with meaning as with just finding the right sounds to fit with the melody. Mm hmm. Like, I remember there was a fairly famous quotation from, I want to say, Phil Bailey, uh, where he argued with the body bit in September because he felt just so stupid singing that. OK, we have to put actual words in here. And Maurice is telling him, no, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And he turned out to be absolutely right. Mm-hmm. That's funny. That's a, 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 like like the concept of a wordless chorus hasn't existed for like who knows how long. Anyway, Phil, mm-hmm. you were going to say something. Yeah. So listening to this album, um, this song is typical of it in that, you know, I listened to it a bunch of times. The words, like, none of them really jumped out at me. Like, it's not really what I would call a lyrics album. It's really all more about the sound to the point where later in the album, which we'll get to, there's a song in here that they just went, they got rid of the words altogether and just made sounds, which works very well. But here, you know, I listened to the lyrics, like, I kind of clicked in with them, but I always paid way more attention to the groove that they were getting into than what Maurice White was actually, you know, saying here. Mm-hmm. You have anything, Mike? Uh, what I one thing I like about this song is how it has that fake out intro that leads you to expect a completely different song than what you end up getting, and it never it never pops back up in the song again. It's just that's the one time you're getting it, and then once the main body of the song comes in, it's this big slow funk it's kind of it is kind of a tango it's got it's got a bit of that uh feel to it and it's got there's cowbell all over it it's got these it's a uh, it's slow but you've got these horns just 
plowing right through the middle of it at double speed, which creates this really, it's, uh, it's busy, but you can hear everything and nothing gets lost. That's one thing that I wanted to uh, actually bring up about Earth, Wind & Fire as sort of a musical unit is that uh, personally, I think that they're a band that are full of that's that was full of like talented instrumentalists. But I, f- I feel that they f- that they worked better as a single massive unit. And you can see it on this song. Like they f- they sound like a snake on this song moving like as one single gigantic unit. And it's uh, I think it's worth mentioning. This was the first uh this was the first Earth, Wind, and Fire album that Maurice White produced by himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, that's notable because the production is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This is a really well-produced album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get some good headphones for this one. Absolutely. One other thing I wanted to point out is that amazing bass part. Mm-hmm. It's being played by Maurice White's brother, uh, Verdine. Am I saying that right? Verdine White. Yeah. At some point, we're going to have. White. At some point, we're going to have to go through the list of band members. I would. Uh, mm-hmm. There are nine of yeah, them. Yeah, he's just there are an nine of them. Incredible bassist. I mean, that bass part is just on fire through the whole song. It's a serpentine fire. Hello. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was dumb. Cut that out, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but leading up to the the oh yeah part toward the end, the bass and the brass parts are doubled in octaves, and it sounds so cool after that super funky bass part going through the whole song. It calms down just a little bit to pair up with the brass. It's such a cool effect. Well, you want to move on? Sure. Yep. All right, let's go. fantasy and it's really too bad there's no visual component to this podcast because you guys would have seen rich lip syncing his heart out it's how i get into the groove (laughs) seems very effective yeah so mike we got that false beginning again like you talked about before i think that's something these guys do a lot Mm -hmm. yeah this one comes back a little bit later but yeah it's it's got uh it sets you up for something totally different than what you get Mm -hmm. with a great horn transition into that more funky section there at the beginning yeah yeah, so I'm not going to lie, like, this is basically the reason I chose this album, because this is the album that has fantasy on it. 
just one of the greatest Earth, Wind & Fire songs, one of the greatest songs, period. And I actually never heard it growing up, and it's just such a remarkable piece of music. So I'll get into, the, I'll get a little, into a little bit of the history. Um, it was, at the time, a lesser chart hit than Serpentine Fire, hitting only number 32 on the Hot 100 and number 12 on the R&B charts. But I would say that the song has grown in popularity to the point where it's now one of their signature songs. And uh, I would say that, in part, this is because it's been sampled like crazy in hip-hop, and this is going to be a recurring theme in this episode. And I would say to the greatest chart success on Florida rapper Ply's uh, 2007 single, Shawty, featuring T-Pain, and it actually charted higher than the original song at US number nine and number one on the rap charts. Yeah, so as you can hear, it's just a little bit from the beginning of the song uh, loop. It's not the most complex use of a sample in hip-hop. Yeah, but see, I told you we covered a lot of ground musically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's going to be my thing. Like, I love whosampled.com. Um, anyway, to move on, um, musically, I would say this is probably the quintessential example of Maurice White's complex, impeccable arrangements. Apparently, the song took literally three months to record, which is even more astounding when you consider like that Earth, Wind & Fire was a very stringent touring and recording unit like they had they did an album a year they did a tour a year and it was all just you know a very like mechanized process uh, and i don't know just the fact that they fit in like three months to work on a single song into that recording schedule is insane to me and i guess uh, the other thing i have to say about it is that thematically the song was uh well people were obsessed with space at the time because of star wars and i think specifically I think the song itself was inspired by Star Wars and the stage show, which had a giant pyramid. We'll talk a little bit more about the stage show later, but uh, it's pretty crazy. But on the stage show, they had like a giant pyramid inspired by Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the spaceship in it. Specifically, if the finale in which, spoiler alert, Richard Dreyfus ascends to a higher state of being after a spaceship light show. Um, so Maurice White envisioned the ship as a giant pyramid in keeping with the contemporary cultural obsession with King Tut. And... Um, Basically, like this was the big space pyramid album for uh, for Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then um, which is reflected on the cover. Yeah, it's on the cover, and uh, people were all about the pyramids at the time. I think that Todd Rundgren's Utopia also toured with the pyramid around this time, and I bet they weren't the only ones. And there were the pyramids on Dark Side of the Moon too. Oh, true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then finally, uh, well, I guess just to conclude my thoughts on it, I, uh, the most important thing to the song to me is that it's, it's, it's just simply a superior piece of song craft. And I especially love the coda in which it seems like the, the spaceship starts ascending to the heavens and then like, you know, just pauses for a second and allows everybody in and then goes back to the heavens again. So I'm going to play that for you guys. As you can see, it's basically two songs. Uh, and I would say that the fantasy's only flaw is that there is only one key change. It, it doesn't just keep going like that one Beyonce song. But I guess that might have put too much of a strain on Phil Bailey. He was already in falsetto mode, so it might have just destroyed him. Uh, so what do you all think of fantasy? Well, I do want you to know that that coda has been stuck in my head for three solid days. 
which isn't entirely a bad thing. But, uh, you know, after three straight days, I'm just kind of sort of starting to get tired of it. But it took that long because it's that good. Well, I really like how, you know, the song's very catchy and good for the duration, though, like the coda, like, is probably the high point of the song. But they hold back on it. Like, it's, they got a hook that big, but they don't just bludgeon you with it. And this was released as a single where, you know, generally you want to catch people's attention pretty quickly. And as good as the first part is, they held off the really cool coda bit till the end, which I think is very effective. And it keeps, it keeps some interest in the song because you know that part's coming. And even though the first part's good, you know that's where you're going. And just a really well-constructed song. And as usual, like, you know, the thing I noticed on most of the songs on this album is how much I like the percussion, which is typically excellent on this track. I, I feel like this song would lend itself really well to a very expensive music video. I know that that wasn't the sort of thing that was made at the time, but I'm I'm imagining like a really big budget, like 80s Fantasia, like the sort of thing like Kate Bush or somebody would have made. Or like, like a thriller style mini movie? Maybe, yeah. Well, I was thinking specifically of the Scream music video and how it takes place on a spaceship. So maybe like the, that's the first half. Like maybe like, like the first half is fantasy and the second half, Janet and Michael get on board the ship and start breaking everything. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, you, you mentioned that he was uh, inspired by Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, I, I remember watching uh, the making of Jurassic Park once and Steven Spielberg actually mentioned that. One day while he was driving onto the set, he was bumping Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I don't, I don't think he ever mentioned what song it was. But he had, he had the bass way up, and every time the bass line came around, it would shake the rearview mirror. And that was how we got the idea for the T-Rex scene. So the, the influence really came full circle there. That's great. Anything that results in the T-Rex scene is great. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everything that led up to that T-Rex scene. Mm-hmm. And without that, we wouldn't have Jurassic World. Oh, and wouldn't that be a loss to humanity? I wanted to point out that line until the 12th of never comes from a song by Johnny Mathis from 1958. Hmm. I don't know if it's a deliberate quote, but that does seem it doesn't seem like the kind of phrase you just pull out of thin air. I'm not I'm not totally even sure while I'm bringing this up because I'm not sure what point he was trying to make. I just thought it was kind of nifty that there was that callback to a song that could not possibly be more different from this. Okay, well, let's move on to track three. This is an interlude called In the Marketplace. So that instrument you just heard right there in that interlude was a kalimba, Maurice White's signature instrument, also known as a mbira. Um, and I mostly paused here because uh, I've been made aware that Mike apparently owns one and is going to play it for us. Going to break out into the beginning of Lark's Tongues in Aspect Part 1. I've been trying to learn that. It sounds like that. That was great. <laughs> and you have it tuned to the Maurice White's tuning because, of course, you would. Exactly. Yeah. You, they, uh, you can buy it tuned to what they call evil tuning. And it's, <laughs> called, it's called that because it's uh, the tuning that Maurice White uses in evil. And probably 
most other Earth, Wind & Fire songs. And I'm not sure whether it's uh, tuned to any particular system or just because he liked it, but it has a very nice sound to it. So the kalimba was there from the beginning of Earth, Wind & Fire. You hear it on their first album, and it's just like kind of the signature timbre that you'll that basically defines Earth, Wind & Fire. If if there's a kalimba, there's a there be Earth, Wind & Fire. What I like about it is that it's basically the Game Boy of pianos. Like it's a thumb piano. You play it with like both of your thumbs, kind of like. Uh, well, I'm saying kind of like this, as if you can see me. But basically, imagine that you're holding a handheld video game system and uh, or texting mm-hmm, or texting. Yeah. I think it was like an Atari Lynx. An Atari Lynx. Wow, that is really getting into the well. Okay, well, I mean, that's just an interlude. Let's move on to the next song. So that was Jupiter, and uh, this combo of interlude and song actually opened the tour for this album. So this seems as good a place as any to talk about their live show. And um, in short, it was bonkers. It was insane. A televised show from 1978 is available on YouTube, and I encourage everyone who listens to this to watch at least the first five minutes. Basically, We'll link to it on our Twitter for those of you who want to look at it. Yeah, it's worth seeing. Yeah, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, but basically, like it's as if Spinal Tap uh, worked. Or if the scene where uh, they have to, like, you know, chainsaw them out of the giant pods actually worked correctly. But essentially, like, uh, these these nine space cylinders, like, come down from the ceiling amid a giant, like, cloud of dry ice. And then lift off of them, revealing the band just clad completely in white robes. And they just segue seamlessly into Jupiter. And it is just fantastic. And uh, Amanda, you watched it, too, right? Oh, yeah, it's wild. It's like, eat your hearts out, Pink Floyd. I don't see you guys getting beamed down from the mothership. Yeah, it's one of those, like, uh, it's one of those situations where I wish that I was alive in the 70s, even though I know that there are all sorts of horrible reasons why I'm glad that I'm not, <laughs> or, or I'm glad that I wasn't. But I just know that the sound in those uh, in those venues uh, would have probably blown my ears out and would have been amazing. And on top of it, we, I would have been watching Earth, Wind & Fire. So. Yeah, and the, the video quality on that clip isn't great, but it's good enough that you can see what they were doing and how completely nuts it was. It's awesome. Yeah, it's clearly a VHS recording from some televised thing, but it's, it's only half an hour long for that reason. But I encourage everybody to watch all of it. Um, and I, and I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to refer to a Maurice White quote that I uh, found that was relevant in this case. Uh, he, uh, 
uh, while talking to Blues and Soul magazine around the time of this album, he said that uh, we actually consider ourselves part of the theater. Uh, to us, music and theater are all part of one, and we are trying to bring this part of it to the people more. Visuality is so important. And um, I think that's really interesting that, like, to them, you know, um, well, especially, like, in the context of, say, like, Video Killed the Radio Star and the entire debate over whether, you know, music videos are part of the art or whether they're destroying the art. And, um, and even, like, you know, going forward to 2018, like, the idea of Childish Gambino's This Is America video, like, uh, and whether it matters that it hit number one on the chart based on the fact that it had such a memorable video. So... And I think that I, I just think it's interesting. Like you can see the roots of that sort of question here, and we all see where, where Maurice White would land. And I guess the last thing I'll say about Jupiter is just musically, it's fine. It seems like the song that's designed, the type of song that's designed, to just be able to go on forever live if necessary. Musically, it's somewhat of a retread of their 1976 hit "Getaway," as well as their breakthrough hit "Shining Star." But I think it still has its own identity. But um, that's enough for me. What do you guys think? It's it's a pretty straightforward uh, funk song. Uh, much more straightforward than the last two songs, certainly. Way more of a normal song than Serpentine Fire or, you know, Fantasy. That said, I really like straightforward funk songs. This one's got a great groove. It's got a weird little part towards the end where, like, it kind of shifts a little bit. I don't know the best way to describe it, but it's kind of unexpected, and it's a really cool touch. It's, um... Again, a very solid song. If, assuming you like, you know, just straightforward, danceable, funky music, which is, um, yeah, what this delivers. Yeah, it's kind of another serpentine riff, too. Yeah, it, it does sound like, you know, a couple other earlier hits, but I really like those earlier hits, and I'm totally fine with more songs that sound like them. So I'm very much into this song. Yeah, this was actually the third single from the album, though I, I didn't mention any chart statistics because there were none. Oh, really? This didn't chart at all? Nope, did not chart at all. I, I think it might have been one, a case where it only was released in like Australia or something. Sometimes, like, oh, eh, who cares about that? Yeah, I know. Sometimes when Wikipedia or Discog says something was released as a single, they mean like you know just technically somewhere. Well, I also mm-hmm. I looked at like the track listings from some Earth, Wind, and Fire best ofs, and this is not frequently on them despite the fact that it was a single. So it's kind of uh, a lot more forgotten than some of their other songs. It's teetering on the edge of being a deep cut. Yeah, well, this seems like as good a place as any to mention that one of my favorite things about the album as a whole is that the production reaches Brian Wilson on Pet Sounds levels of precision. And particularly on this song, uh, the horns are so precise and so perfect. They almost sound like a synth to me. They do. Yeah, I, I kind of had a similar thought, which also kinda, it could also kind of lead to a debate in terms of, you know, because uh, Mike talked on earlier about how, like, you know, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire were kind of slick. And I agree with that. Like, they are very, very precise, almost to the point of slickness, but not quite like, you know, super slick. I mean, they yeah, had some edge to them. teetering on the edge of overproduced. Right. And if I have a general complaint about Earth, Wind, and Fire, which it's not really a complaint, this is a personal quirk of mine, is that, like Amanda said, this is very, very highly produced, very precise music. And I generally have a little bit of a um, predilection to like stuff that's a little bit rougher than this. Like, I've always liked stuff that feels more live than this. This doesn't feel live. It feels very much like a studio construction 
which works. Mm -hmm. Like it's again, it's not a complaint. It's just it is what it is. And it's very effective. But that's I feel like some people are less into Earth, Wind and Fire because of that precision that makes them feel less raw than like, I don't know, a band like Funkadelic. It's definitely a side effect of Maurice White's arranging that it all just, you know, it, it sounds like clockwork. And I think that that actually like is a flaw of their later albums. Like it really ends up sounding like drudgery to me. Yeah, I know what you mean here, but like this is kind of like that formula at the height of its powers. Oh, yeah, it it works great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're all such top shelf phenomenal musicians, too, that it it almost ends up working against them, Phil. I think I agree with you that this is just a little too smooth, uh, which is why I'd be interested to hear more of their live performances to see if that changes a little bit. Do they have any live albums or? They've got a really good one called Gratitude that I mm-hmm. was listening to as part of my uh, as part of preparing for this episode. That was the of, of the, the Earth, Wind and Fire albums I went through. That was the one that stood out to me the most because of the, the live energy they have on that one. My favorite thing about the live songs on Gratitude, actually, is that uh, they do a version of Shining Star, but it's right when the song came out. So nobody reacts to the uh, to the initial riff. But when they start singing When You Wish Upon a Star, that's when the cheers break out. Like people weren't entirely familiar with this now incredibly famous song uh, when this live version was recorded. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to Love's Holiday? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do So that was Love's Holiday, track five. And um, consensus seems to be forming among this group uh, based on discussion that this is the weak link on the album, though it isn't bad or anything. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, uh, but to me, Earth, Wind & Fire set a pretty high ceiling for ballads, as some of their other hits, including Devotion and Reasons, demonstrate. Um, What do you all think? I'm not a fan. I just don't tend to like their ballads, Mm -hmm. period. Those do tip over the edge into overproduced and too slick for for my taste and they're just they're so 70s and i'm just not a real big fan of 70s soft rock period so this it just doesn't do it for me yeah this is definitely a place for my taste like clash hardcore with a lot of people on here i love 70s soft rock so uh to me this like hits the baseline of that so it's fine but i would never call it exceptional yeah, see, and the thing is, I'm very hypocritical because I will listen to Still Crazy After All These Years all day long, and that is way more slick 70s soft rock than this, so, yeah, I don't know. I think we all have different uh, cheesy music that we let into our hearts. 
Mm-hmm. But I guess, like, I'm just not in favor of... I don't know the best way to describe it. Like, I'm not a huge fan of 70s soul makeout music. Like, for example, like, I don't particularly like, say, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On LP. Which, I mean, it's fine. I don't dislike it. But it's just not a genre, like, that ever really connected with me. And this song, which I feel kind of the same way as I do about, like, that album, which is that it's fine. It's competent. I like it while it's playing. I'm never going to skip it, but eh, it's fine. It's never going to be my favorite song. It's it's an album track, essentially. Like, no strong opinion on it. Yeah, that's a thing. Like, I'm not mad about it, but I don't really... I don't particularly enjoy it. And in fact, I have skipped it. But like going through the album, it's. But I mean, it's again, it's a personal quirk of mine. Like if I don't particularly like the song Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, then what chance does this have? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's I, I don't mind it. It's it's got that whole sort of luxurious bubble bath ballad thing going on. Bubble bath ballad. <laughs> That's beautiful. I just pulled that out of the top of my head right now. Wow. Uh, out of the top of my head. That's <laughs> There's an expression for you. Like Zeus. Or is that Cronus? Yes. It's Zeus. Uh, I forget. Yeah. Uh, it's been a while for me. I don't think there's a lot to say about this song, like, musically, so I just wanted to use this as an excuse to talk about, like, um, some contemporary perspectives on the band and album. I dove into some reviews from Blues and Soul, Rolling Stone, Enemy, and uh, one thing I found is there's definitely a lot of coded racial language, though I'm not going to repeat any of it. Um, the one thing I do want to repeat is from Enemy's review from Across the Pond, because it is just so delightfully British. See, the trouble is, for all their mind-blowing musicianship, E, W, and F are about as puerile a bunch of lyricists as the very worst of the flower power kids. They're also airy-fairy, and what's worse, couched in the most excruciatingly pseudo-poetical gibberish. You'd think the whole thing was a put-on if it wasn't for the blatantly obvious fact that the group have absolutely no sense of humor. Unlike me. Wince, (laughs) I get a stiff neck every time they start to sing. Still, there is a way around the problem. Instead of flinging their albums through the nearest window, persevere until you can mentally tune out the vocals. Fortunately, it doesn't take long to reach this state of mind because the group sing in a light, harmonic, and essentially boring style that is relatively easily dismissed. Oh, I love British people. Jeez. Life. Uh, just for the record, that's NME as in New Musical Express, not Enemy. Although, they do kind of sound like the enemy there. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that similarity has definitely been taken advantage of. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or has definitely been noted. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because I thought it was hilarious. They also refer to extraneous horn players who play like their tails are on fire and the prize for such an exciting performance is a bucket of water each. Like that's a bad thing. <laughs> I don't even know what I mean, that's ridiculous, but it's an excellent metaphor. That sounds like something from like a Michael Haneke movie or something. <laughs> but I guess like. If you, if you take one lesson away from listening to this podcast, it's a lesson that I learned long ago, which is uh, basically don't trust professional critics because, like, seriously, go back to, like, you know, old Rolling Stone record guides or whatever. Look up your favorite albums or, like, you know, the albums that really endured and, like, see what Rolling Stone had to say about them. See what Rolling Stone had to say about, like, Black Sabbath back in, like, 1971 and then compare it to, you know their legacy and you know and what rolling stones say about black sabbath now mm-hmm. yeah it's mm-hmm. like 
I think every single one of their classic 70s albums got like one star. Like, and now if you go back, it's like they're one of the best bands of all time. Five stars. But they had very, they were very often deeply wrong about what was going to endure and what wasn't. And so, you know, I've long since learned like just sort of a philosophical thing here. You know, if a critic tells you that an album is bad, you know, screw it. They're probably wrong. Just like what you like. Yeah. And, and I was reading the, uh, the Rolling Stone review of this album that, that they printed when this came out and they compare it unfavorably to, uh, or they contrast it unfavorably with, uh, Sign the Family Stones, there's a riot going on for no clear reason other than that they're kind of in the same genre. Vaguely. I, <laughs> vaguely. And I get the impression that it was like it was like 1977 and they were all kind of head over heels for punk and they were kind of trying to force the framework of like punk versus prog onto a kind of music that it had nothing to do with. It was this they had this weird thing where they were very down on like professionalism. Yeah, everything has to be it's got to be gritty and it's got to it's got to be the, the whoever made it had to be self-destructing at the time and it, you know that's, that's what why, makes it real. That's why you got to love there's a riot going on by Sly Stone because he was in a constant state of self-destruction at the time whereas Maurice White, I mean, as far as I know things were going great for him at the time. He was putting together some very professional, well-produced albums, so you can't like that. And it's all very positive and about, you know, loving everybody. I mean, Jupiter is literally about a man from space coming all the way to Earth to give Maurice White a flower. <laughs> and Maurice White decides, I need to start loving the people around me more. And it's completely sincere. So it's, it's just not going to jive very well with somebody who wants to just everything to just be nihilistic and... Well well, irony is Although, dead. And to be fair, we were just making, you know, milder versions of that same complaint about grittiness and authenticity, you know, with it, with I think particularly Phil and me thinking this is just a smidge too overproduced. Right. But there's um, I think there's a difference between like, you know, professionalism and stuff. I like a lot of stuff that's very professional, but that also sounds like, you know, it has an edge. A lot of stuff that sounds like it has an edge. That edge is very manufactured. Yeah, because a, a band that's actually, you know, falling apart is not very fun to listen to because then you've got mm -hmm. the shags. Okay, we're, we're, we're branching off into all of the entire rest of music, which I know we can do because I do it in my brain all the time. But let's move on to the next song. Yes. Okay, so that was track six, Brazilian Rhyme, Bio. 
And uh, personally, honestly, I consider this track to be the proof of concept for this podcast because um, it's a minute and 20 seconds long, could possibly have been composed just to fill out the side. And honestly, I was all ready to skip it, be like, oh, it's an interlude, I'll just blah, 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 blah. But honestly, it's perhaps the most important song on the entire album. <laughs> if you think fantasy has been sampled a lot, this song is one of the foundational tracks of hip hop. When you sample fantasy... You're, you're referencing fantasy, but when you sample Brazilian Ryan Bio, it's its own sample. It's taken on a life of its own. And this is because early DJs in New York, in the Bronx, would spin this record for MCs to rhyme over um, because it provided a really like you know simple, catchy, rhythmic track. And um, as a reference to this, the song has been sampled dozens upon dozens of times in the decades since. And I'm going to play a few of those clips for you. Yeah, so that was uh, that was MC Shy D with uh, "Gotta Be Tough." That was Mr. Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest's 1991 debut. And then finally, the last one is probably the weirdest one of any of them. Yeah, and that was MF Doom, uh, absolutely. And I think that that, uh, Mike, I can't quite tell there, but is that matching it up with TLC's Creep? Oh, it might be. Yeah. I couldn't uh, really tell. It's hard to tell because it sounds like, you know, it's a, it's like under like the gray haze of an apocalypse or something, like everything yeah. MF Doom does. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I could have kept going with that for a while, but like uh, another famous one is Still Not a Player by Big Pun. Um, and if you just go on whosampled.com, I think that it's been sampled like, Somewhere in the area of 70 times. I had never heard this track specifically before buying this album, but when it came on, I immediately recognized it from that MF Doom track you played, <laughs> because I love I love MF Doom, and I recognize that instantly. And then it's like, yeah, it's been all over hip hop. I'd heard it a billion times without hearing the original recording. Yeah, I knew it from A Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, we all know it from somewhere, I think. I thought I first heard it on the Earth, Wind & Fire album, but it turns out that it's just been, like, sprinkled throughout all the hip-hop albums I've heard. No, and for me being generally ignorant of hip-hop, I hadn't heard it at all. It sounds like I was missing out. It's still just an interlude and we can move on, but I think that that's just wonderful. This little, like, piece of this album has been so massively influential. And you'll find that is the case for a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire. Like, a lot of their other songs have been sampled pretty regularly, including some other ones that we're going to get to later. But let's move on to the next one. This is uh, I'll Write a Song for You. I do 
it stop? And what am I to say? Open a music book that only few can look, and I'll write a song for you. I actually don't really have much to say about this one. It's a nice showcase for Phil Bailey. The Rolling Stone review that Mike referred to said that Verdine White sings this one, but I think that they might have just gotten it totally wrong. I don't think he ever sings. Uh, I think they got their members mixed up. But uh, I think Amanda has more to say about this song than I do. I do. So I left out a crucial piece of my Earth, Wind, and Fire history, and that is the fact that I was in my high school's marching band, And my senior year of high school, this would be the 1998 to 99 season, our field show was Earth, Wind and Fire themed. And this was one of the songs that we played. I am sure it was tremendously dorky. I have scoured the Internet trying to find video for you guys, and I am coming up short. But I promise you, it was a sight to behold. What else did you play? Uh, It was, you know, I racked my brains trying to remember. We started with Boogie Wonderland which was really fun. Um, then the others were their version of Got to Get You Into My Life. Then In the Stone, I'll Write a Song for You, and I want to say Faces. It was a really, really fun field show, you guys. I think I probably played the same. We played Earth, Wind & Fire's uh, Got to Get You Into My Life as well when I was in marching band. Oh, yeah? Because we're all band dorks here, apparently. Yep. But yeah, like... I did. We didn't do the others, but that one I definitely did. What did you play, Phil? I was in. I played the alto saxophone. I played the clarinet. Ah, still in the woodwind zone. So yeah, I had a feeling I was dorkier than you. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. <laughs> anyway, pulling things back to this song. Um, so leading up to this podcast, this song didn't do a lot for me. Um, really, the first several times I listened to it, but for some reason, on my way home from work today. I was playing this album. I had this song cranked up really loud and it really worked for me for some reason. Like it's a very pretty ballad. I think it goes on a little bit too long. The ending of it is a little bit drawn out, but it's a very pretty effective little ballad. It's not a classic, but I really like it. It's probably my personal least favorite song on the album, but it's not it's not bad by any means. It's more about my personal taste. It's just so soft and feathery and it's not really the sort of thing I go for but it's I mean it's pretty it reminds me of almost like you know almost like a moody blues ballad or something like that yeah I can see that you know they did get pretty corny the moody (laughs) blues I mean yeah and this is I mean it's fine it's definitely kind of on the corny side you know for me but it's, you know, it's it's fine. I kind of like the little guitar part that's playing under the verses at the beginning. It's it's nice. And that's unique on the album, isn't it? I don't remember hearing that kind of acoustic guitar anywhere else. That's that's the thing that jumped out at me when I was listening to it earlier. I don't think that's, that's really uncommon for this album. It's just a very simple, pretty little acoustic guitar run. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it stands out and gives the album a little bit of diversity and... I'm never putting this on like a mixtape of my favorite songs or anything, but in the context of the album, I definitely like it. All right. Anybody else or should we move on to Magic Mind? Yeah, let's go. Let's move on to track eight, Magic Mind.
Okay, that was Magic Mind XXL. And that seems like another song to me that seems designed for a live setting, much like Jupiter. So uh, I don't really have much to say about it musically, but it's another song that I stumbled across an interesting sample for. It was sampled by the British electronic duo Meat Beat Manifesto on the song Strap Down. This one's a real danger. song which instantly put the group on my wife's list of least favorite recording acts of all time. So what do you all think? Yeah, I think I'm with her. <laughs> oh, not about Meat Beat Manifesto, about the about Magic Mike. Oh, sorry, sorry. The band we're actually discussing. I don't think you would like Meat Beat Manifesto. No, I'm positive I don't like Meat Beat Manifesto. I think just saying their name might have given us the explicit tag. Yeah, quite we'll a name. See. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, but I quite like Magic Mind. I mean, you know, it's not in my, um, I, I guess it's not in my top half of the album, but uh, it's a great album. So, you know, yeah. it is in my top half, I think. And a lot of it has to do with that really nifty syncopated rhythm and rhyme scheme, starting with take a chance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's a, another section where I'm not sure if the words are meant to really mean anything or if they were just chosen to make that wonderful, wonderful rhythm. Yeah, if there's any real meaning there, I couldn't suss it out. Because, again, this is another one of those songs where I really wasn't paying attention to the words. It was just all about how it sounds. Exactly. The words are just about how their tails are on fire and that they need water or something. Yeah. (laughs) Most of what I'm paying attention to in this song is that Moog bass they've got playing. At least I think it's a Moog. It's got that real fat sound to it. I'm a big fan of this big analog synth bass sounds. And this song has a particularly good one. And also, uh, something I, I found out about the song is that the original title was going to be Midget Mind. Uh, and they eventually decided against that for probably very good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Would have made a good Devo song title, probably. Yeah. <laughs> they were just way ahead of their time. Something from the hardcore years. Yeah. So, I think, like, this is... Of the, like, kind of upbeat songs on the number, I think it's probably about the most straightforward it's 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 not as straightforward as like some of the slower ballads, but it's pretty straightforward. It's it's a funk groove, kind of like Jupiter, but even less, you know, less interesting stuff going on than that. But again, this isn't it's not really an insult because I enjoy a good funk groove as much as the next guy. And this one works like I, I enjoy it while it's playing about the only like super interesting thing about the only out of the ordinary interesting thing is there's a false end in there where it just kind of acts like it's going to end and then it just kind of snaps back and runs for another 30 seconds or so. How dastardly. Right. They tricked me. <laughs> I hate that. But it's it's a good song. All right. I think our minds are sufficiently magical now. So let's go running. That's a good segue. I specialize in those.
these songs are always so easy to take clips from because Maurice White is great at introducing a motif and developing it to its conclusion within a minute. Um, anyway, so whereas Fantasy was uh, was the most complex layered pop song on the album, I would say this is the most layered of the grooves on this album. And uh, I, I know that this one got a really positive reaction from the group in general, and it's one of the best songs on the album to me. Uh, it's a neat showcase for both White's arranging skills as well as the band's chops. And it's it, it's not much of a traditional song, but it's a really fun groove that goes in a lot of neat directions. And um Draws on some of the motifs from earlier in the album, but we can get into that. Uh, what I love about it is that um, I associate it with Organized Confusion, well, hip-hop group Organized Confusion's song Walk Into the Sun, in which they mash it up with um, Steely Dan's Green Earrings in a gloriously late 70s combo. <laughs> That's a great album, by the way. Um, maybe we'll cover it later on the podcast. But um, anyway, enough enough about my opinion. Let's get to you guys. I can see why people would want to borrow that groove. Mm-hmm. It's excellent, and it seems like it could be adapted to just whatever you need it to be, although it fits so well in here. And you were right that this song covers a lot of ground. They pay visits to a lot of different genres just in this, what, five and a half, six minute song? Mm-hmm. It's definitely the closest thing they get to uh, jazz fusion on this album. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. And I also wanted to mention, it takes a lot of skill to make scat singing sound that good. I mean, you have to really know what you're doing not to sound like a total schmuck when you're trying to do that. This is probably my favorite song on the album. Like, I like stuff that can cover a lot of ground. This has so many different melodic parts, so many different you know, grooves and instruments and all kinds of stuff going on the whole time. And it keeps my attention the whole time. Like, I really like it a lot. And, and there's a and, there's uh, a specific bit you wanted to talk about, right, uh, later in the song? Yeah, there's a part about a little bit more than two minutes into it where it almost, like, almost has, like, a prog rock, almost, like, keyboard solo that kind of, like, goes into, like, a Latin jazz kind of thing, and it's really cool, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it still works with the song. It is quite good. I just always really liked that kind of, you know, jazzy, jammy kind of thing. Like, it's it's a really cool track. Again, probably my favorite on the record. And one interesting side note on this one is that if you buy um, one of the more recent CDs, there's an alternate version on there. They call it an alternate mix, but listening to it, it's clearly not an alternate mix. It's a completely different recording. It's It's basically a demo where I talked earlier about how I like, you know, stuff that's a little bit rougher around the edges. And this is that. It's, you know, 
there's no extra horns or anything. It's just the band playing with a very prominent piano part that you don't hear very much on the final track. And it's really good, actually. And it's interesting to hear like a band like, you know, that's as focused on perfectionism and making sure everything is in its right place as Earth, Wind and Fire kind of just going in, getting into like a rougher groove. And it's definitely worth listening to, like, if you like the track in the first place, it's a very worthwhile, like bonus track. Yeah, and that proggy bit you were talking about, listening to it while we were listening to it just now, what it reminded me of was uh, something you might hear by uh, the Italian prog band Goblin. Oh, yes. On some of their less, uh, some of their non-horror movie soundtrack work. Right, not the Argento years. Yeah. I've listened to some Goblin, and you're you're not wrong. That does kind of sound like something they'd do. Yeah. Yeah, and right after that proggy bit, it takes a hard left straight into Latin jazz to the point where, Rich, I think you have the clip of this. It reminded me of a very specific piece of Latin jazz uh, from Stan Kenton's Cuban Fire Suite. This is one of the very few jazz albums that I will listen to voluntarily. And it's just, I honestly wouldn't be surprised, although I couldn't find any evidence of this, if they were directly inspired by that suite. Because it's just that wonderful Latin rhythm with a fantastic trumpet solo over it they sound it doesn't sound like it's directly lifted from it but it's very similar hear that or am I insane? Oh, it's definitely there. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's head into some Brazilian rhyme then. Okay, so this is the penultimate track from the album. We are in the home stretch. Okay, so a little bit of background information about uh, All in All that I didn't get to is that before recording this album, Maurice White spent some time uh, in South America, specifically in Brazil and Argentina, and you can hear a lot of those influences on this album, uh, particularly here. Well, I mean, two of these tracks are called Brazilian Rhyme, but this one in particular is a cover of the song Ponte de Aria by Milton Nascimento, uh, who is an outstanding artist who you should hear as many albums as possible by. This song in particular is from the uh, 1975 album uh, Minas. I don't really. I don't know Portuguese pronunciation very well. I think I got it right, but I'm going I'm to play a clip of the original right here. the original Pontaderia. Um, any thoughts on this interlude? Any thoughts on Milton Nascimento? I know you like him, Mike. 
I do, although I don't know that album that the song is from. I'm going to have to check that out now, though. Yeah, it's a good one. I think I remember you got me one, Clube de Esquina. Yeah, that one's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this one's just an interlude. I think uh, for the sake of like moving along, I'm just going to jump. This one flows right into the final track, Be Ever Wonderful. So that was Be Ever Wonderful, and I love the title, Be Ever Wonderful. It's one of my favorite Earth, Wind, and Fire song titles, and it makes me want to refer to their spiritual philosophy as expressed by Maurice White. Earth, Wind, and Fire contained uh, members of multiple religions, Christians, Muslims, uh, non-denominational, and what Maurice White himself said was, I do not partake of any particular religion because I feel as though I'm a universal being trying to accomplish as many things as I can in this cosmic trip. But we also do try to practice good habits. And I'll stress the word try again. We do try. We are not in any way perfect, but we are consciously trying to perfect. And that is the best way to put it. In other words, be excellent to each other. With the rest of the album being party on. So to me, Be Ever Wonderful is easily the best ballad on the album. Um, It brings the entire experience to a crescendo. And it's the most direct nod on the album to the band's gospel influences. Whereas the other, like... Ballads on the album are more of the like quiet storm, like soft rock variety. But what does everyone else think? Oh yeah, it's definitely the best ballad on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got an incredibly good vocal performance, like one of the best vocal performances on the album. It's got again that kind of kind of a false start. The the beginning makes it sound like it's going to be a bit more upbeat than it is before it kind of like settles into its kind of slow gospel style groove and it's a very good song again like i generally prefer earth winds and fire when they're you know faster and more energetic so this is never going to be my favorite song on the record but it's definitely the best of the ballads and it definitely 
it draws the album to a close quite well. I'm imagining you at the concert being like, why are they playing the slow song? When are they going to get to the fast song? When are they going to get to the fireworks factory? I was thinking fireworks factory. Yeah. So that's the one Simpsons reference we're allowed this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, th- I think it, it definitely is the best of the ballads on the album. It's a really nice send off. It's got that really soaring lead vocal. And it's just, it's Maurice White telling you he likes you and wants you to keep being awesome. And mm-hmm. that's, that's just a, a really nice way to end the album. I don't know if they, like, I know nothing about Earth, Wind, and Fire as a live attraction other than that video that we talked about earlier. But I feel like this is the kind of song that would function very well as a set closer. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of just see this album as a, as a potential show in and of itself. It's got the whole arc of one, really. Uh, though, as I, as we spoke of earlier, they actually begin with uh, with Jupiter. Yeah, I feel like you guys are all going to attack me for this, but I don't like it. <laughs> Get her! <laughs> You're right. I know. It It is the best ballad on the album. I agree with that. But given that I just dislike their ballad style, that means that I dislike this song more than the other ballads. So it, it, you're right, though, Rich. It's a great title. The lyrics are fantastic. It's a good vocal performance. It's just boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's where the discord comes in. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it can't it can all be rhyme. There's got to be some discord. Otherwise, we would be very, very boring. Yep, this song's great. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I... Yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up for this album. Any closing thoughts on the album as a whole? It's a really good album. <laughs> yep, it's, a, it's, it's an album that was good enough that um, this was my introduction to Earth, Wind, and Fire, but it will definitely not be the end of my delve into their careers because I listened to this a bunch. I grew to like it quite a bit, and... You know, they have tons of albums that are supposed to be as good or in the same level of quality. So if they have more stuff like this, then I'm definitely interested in hearing more. So it successfully convinced me to check out more of their material. So, Rich, you know Earth, Wind & Fire the best of all of us. What would you suggest that we listen to next? Uh, Well, so the good thing about Earth, Wind & Fire is that their whole stretch of albums from about 1974 through 1980 are all basically worth getting i I would say the follow-up album i am uh, is every bit the equal of this one uh, though this is provided that your tastes align with the song after the love is gone which i would say is their most quintessentially late 70s soft rock hit i personally love it but i know for a fact i know that you don't love it amanda yeah so that album is probably not going to do much oh no there's a lot there are a lot of really like i would say that on average it's um it's a harder better faster stronger album well it's harder faster and stronger I would say it's about the equal of all, all right. in all. One song I do really like on it is uh, The Closer, You and I, uh, which I think is one of their less talked about songs. Yeah, so it's a, it's another one that's kind of like, you know, halfway between slow jam and ballad. But really, like, when we're talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire, for me, it was really all just a dry run for Phil Bailey's involvement in Easy Lover, one of the top five songs of the 80s. She's the kind of
I forgot to mention up top that that was with Phil Collins, but personally, I think that Phil Bailey uh, is really the star of that one. But really, like, why compare? Anyway, that's all I have. So uh, I hope I've made Earth, Wind, and Fire fans out of all of you. Yeah, I'd say it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've like I say, I'm definitely my aversion get more. to the ballads, notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna pry their greatest hits album from my cold dead hands just because it has September on it. But uh, I'm definitely going to be investigating their catalog further, for sure. Well, so uh, what are we covering next episode, Amanda? All right. Tune in next time where we will talk about the excellent Moody Blues album, On the Threshold of a Dream. And this is going to be an Amanda-hosted jam. Yeah, you're all going to love it. Yeah, it it won't always be me dragging you guys through, like, you know, 70s soul and soft rock and um, Ariana Grande. Uh, Well, (laughs) the preview of things to come. Right. Well, slowly I'll take over the show and then it'll just become all Phil Collins, which you might ask now, like, am I serious or am I kidding? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Well, Rich did threaten to turn it into a Duran Duran show. So the two of you can duke it out. This will be pretty entertaining. (laughs) I think it is just gradually going to turn into a Duran Duran show, but that's my long game. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Discord and Rhyme, everybody. This was our very first episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And there will be more coming up. As we said, our next album is going to be the Moody Blues uh, on the Threshold of a Dream. You can go to our website, discordpod.com, to see our next five albums coming up, I believe. You can also follow us on Twitter at discordpod. You can follow Rich at Zone Trope. I am at Magnetic Inc. 67. Phil is at PA Maddox. And Mike is not on Twitter, but he loves you very much. It's true. And speaking of Mike, uh, we want to really thank him because he is our producer. He also records his own music under the name of The Other Leading Brand, and I highly recommend you all check it out. Why, thank you. Well, thank you. (laughs) And I think that's it. We'll see you next time. enjoyed what you heard here and would like to listen to all of all in all we have a link to it on our website discordpod.com you can also get it from amazon itunes spotify or your local sam goody for only $19.99 tune in next time for the moody blues and in the meantime be ever wonderful